You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. If I were to have some magic wand, I was watching a Disney show with my kids yesterday, right? So I got a magic wand and I could wave it right now. And it could eliminate some stress in your life that is just really eating at you. What is it that would disappear? Now, you don't have to say it out loud. I realize for some of you, you'd probably say, my spouse. Let me just start over. Maybe some of you, you're like, that's not funny, Pastor. I know, I know, bad jokes. Anyway, maybe some of you would say, honestly, your job, your, your boss, maybe. But here's what I know. There's a huge chunk of you either watching online or visiting with us today or maybe down the road you'll listen to this message, and your answer would actually be something like, if I could just eliminate this one credit card debt, this one payment, this one thing I owe, so much would get better. And I know that in part because I've seen the statistics and the data on where we are as a country related to debt. And so nobody thinks, hey, you know what, honey, let's get up, get dressed, get a shower, and go to church so we can learn about debt. But here's what you need to know. Because your heavenly father loves you, he's put a ton of wisdom in his word for you that you maybe don't know. And the reason I'm gonna suspect you don't know is because I didn't know. And I went through Bible college and nobody ever taught me. And it wasn't until I was out of Bible college and married and dealing with it that I went, hey, there's stuff I don't know. Does God have any wisdom? Or is it all like matter what culture you live in? And what I found out is the Bible has a ton of wisdom to share with us that if we would apply its principles, we'd learn a lot. Here's part of the reason I know that we don't understand debt. It's because we live in a country who thinks debt is the answer to our problems. How do I know? Well, as of September of this year, so just a couple months ago, the national debt for America was $21.45 trillion. This is not a political message because it really doesn't matter which of those major two-party aisles you land on, and I realize some of you think you're the exception to the rule, but pretty much all of our government has put us in this situation. And they continue to answer the problem with more debt. And the thing is, when I hear $21.45 trillion, I can write 25 Four five zero 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 zero. I think I did that right. I can write that in about 10 seconds on a piece of paper. And it doesn't give me any context for just how massive that number is. So let me try to break that number down for you for just how big that number really is. So number one, it is by far, it's not even close, the biggest debt that any country in the entire world has, any single country. In fact, it's so big that if you take the, the European Union, which represents 28 countries, it's bigger than those 28 countries' national debt combined. Oh, wow. How about this one? If you were to break down $28 trillion and I were to give it all to you to spend, But I told you, you have to spend it all. You would have to go back to the year 1 AD. So if you're looking at a timeline, in math, there's a number, zero. It's not really a number. It's an integral or something like that. Uh, But there there is no zero in, in terms of like calendar. So you go from 1 BC to 1 AD. So you go back to the first year, 2018 years ago, you would have to spend, let me see if I get this right, $19,789.17 every single minutes 
from day one until the end of this year. And I didn't put the 450 billion in there, I just took 21 trillion as a ballpark. So you'll still have an additional 450 billion dollars to do whatever you want with after you've accumulated all your stuff. Does that give you any concept for just how big this number is? Just to break it down even further, this makes it seem even smaller, I think, but that would be basically $329.81 per second since day one of 180. And some of you are going, just let me add him, Pastor. Let me add him. Come on. I know I can do it. Just give me a chance. <laughs> and here's what I know. A study was done recently by the um, Consumer Federation of America that said 2 million American households carry credit card balances of more than $20,000. And some of you are like, wow. And some of you are like, yeah, so what? I'm more than that. My last church did Financial Peace University, which we have coming up in January. You could sign up today. Some more signed up today. I recommend you go to that if this message touches you and you need help. But my last church did it. They totaled up all of their credit cards. I think there were 18 families, and they, I think I said it wrong in the last service, so forgive me. I don't remember the exact number now, but I know this. Um, they were well over $150,000 because I think one gentleman alone had $100,000 worth of credit card debt. One gentleman alone. Now, here's the thing. There are a lot of great reasons you might go into debt. In America, the vast majority of us do not have cash to pay for a house when we buy it. So realistically, you're going to need debt. And unless you live close enough to your job or work from your home, you're going to need a car. And many people don't have cash to pay for their car. There's no judgment here. So unless you're going to Uber or unless you're going to be a really responsible 12-year-old or have very wealthy grandparents who passed away, chances are you're going to need loans on those things. So the question isn't those things. The question is all that other consumer debt. And the reality is most of us in America have way too much. That number, $20,000 of credit card debt for those 2 million Americans is up from 1993 from $7,000. So we've nearly tripled it in the last period of time. And some of you are like, Ugh, I came to church to be encouraged, not depressed, Pastor. I know. But see, we need to deal with this because as we keep saying, the truth will set us free. Running from the truth is never our friend. But running to the truth and seeing what it says to us and for us is very helpful always, including me, all the time. I have to have these conversations with my wife and she has to have them with me. So I'm not telling you anything that I haven't had to deal with and deal with even recently in my life. Like how do we make sure we're on the right path? So let me bring you up to speed in case you're visiting with us or new or maybe picked up this series online right in the middle. Let me just bring you up to speed. Week one, we talked about this. Sprint, spent principle number one is this. The biggest yes will rule my life. The biggest yes will rule my life. What that means is whatever I love the most, I'll live my life for. Here's a good way to gauge that. Just if I could summarize that whole message, here it is. If you were to sit down and look at your bank account, all the money that came in and all the money went out, would almost all of that money have been spent on you? If the answer is yes, then your biggest yes might be you. That's a simple way to look at it. Some of you are like, Man, I really don't like this church anymore. Stick with me. I got some good advice for you. Here's the thing. The Bible tells us that Jesus wants to be both our savior, and here's what that means. What that means is this. We got a God problem. I don't know if you know that. We, me, you, we have a God problem. And our God problem is this. We rebelled against God. 
We turned away from his ways. He was our creator, and he wanted us to live in a right relationship with him. But because we rebelled against him, it created a problem. Jesus solved that problem by becoming our savior. When he offered his life on the cross, he erased our debt between us and God, a spiritual accumulation of sin and what it earned us. However, Jesus didn't just come to be our savior and then say, now go live a happy life. Jesus came also to be our Lord to put things back in their right perspective so that God was over us as our leader, our authority. And I realize some of you fight authority and you find authority always wins, right? (laughs) 80s music, anytime you come up with it, you win. But here's what I know. While everybody wants to be autonomous and do their own thing, your life will be happier the sooner you submit to God. Because when you submit to God, you actually find freedom and peace and joy. So if we really want Jesus to be Lord of all we are, which is as Christians, that's what we want, that we have to let him be Lord of all we have. And that's really what this message is about. At least I spent principle number two, which was last week, and that is this. I have the power to live differently with God's help. I don't have to keep living the same way I've been living. I don't have to keep doing things the same way I've been doing them. It is possible to be different, but I'm going to need God's assistance. So as we jump into today, We are going to be looking at debt, and I'm going to teach you what the Bible says about debt. Not everything, but many things. And here's the thing. I'm going to be a little bit more professorial today than usual. Some of you are like, pastor, it's too early in the morning, and I didn't have time to get the coffee today. So I don't understand what you're saying. Here's what I'm saying. I usually land on the uh, inspiration side of preaching. I tell a lot of stories. I try to engage your heart and your mind and send you out motivated to change the world. Today, I'm going to give you a lot of content, and you're going to be, eyes are going to be rolling in the back of your head, and uh, in the 8 a.m. service, somebody started snoring, so I knew I was doing good, but I'm telling you this today because I want you to know the Bible has so much wisdom for you, and I want you to know some of it, okay? So here we go. First thing we have to cover is why do people go into debt in the first place? Okay. Everything I'm about to say is about to be offensive. If you are somebody who is in a lot of debt, and you need to know, because if you're visiting, whatever, you don't know me, I love you so much. I am not telling you anything I haven't had to look in the mirror and face myself. I'm not telling you this to hurt you. I'm just a short, stocky, little, balding Buckeye fan from the state of Ohio who came to this great state of Indiana to learn what family and community is really like and to share with you what God's word says. And if any of that made you laugh at all, then please don't think I'm trying to be judgmental. I'm not, I'm not. Man, I had a couple hard conversations in the hallway between the services and I was able to speak truth and look at some people and say, look, you're living in sin. I love you. I'm telling you this because I love you. Stop, let God show you what he could do when you trust him. Hear me, that's my heart here. What I want you to imagine is I'm just picking up a mirror here and I'm just holding it up. And I'm saying, hey, when you look in this mirror, if this feels like you're looking at you, then it's time to face reality. That's all I'm saying. I'm not judging you, I'm not condemning you. I'm just saying, here's a mirror. You look in it. If it's you, then know something, learn something. All right. Why do people get into debt? Number one, the Bible tells us, really this one's clear as could be, a lack of self-control. Self-control is such a big deal that it is actually listed as one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That when the Holy Spirit comes inside you, you will have the ability to be self-controlled. A year or two ago, I was reading the book of Acts, the Bible book of Acts, and I was so moved. And I don't know if this moved anybody else, but as Paul goes through the book of Acts, a lot of the book is about his ministry and what the Holy Spirit's doing through him. At the end of his ministry, towards the end of the book, he's sitting before some senators and governors, and he's sharing the gospel. 
And it says, as he shared the gospel, he shared the message, how the spirit brings us self-control. And I thought that's weird. And all the times that I've shared the hope of the gospel, never once have I shared the hope of self-control. This is such a big deal. I'm building an entire message at our men's retreat in January. Men, mark your calendars. It's gonna be Martin Luther King weekend. You're gonna wanna be there. And I've never once preached self-control as a message. I'm going to, of the gospel. Because here's what I know and here's what I've learned. God wants to equip you and empower you to be able to live the life that Jesus lived. And the reason that you have too much debt, if that's your story, is because you don't know how to say no to things you want right now. You live in a country and in a world that says, get what you want and get it now. When Amazon says your packages will be here by noon and it's 1230, you get irritated. When you get in line at a fast food restaurant and it's taking five minutes to make your entire family food, you get irritated. You're thinking, this is not fast at all. Like they just made your whole family food and a heart attack all for the price of 25 bucks. Congratulations. (laughs) Now, the Bible says, Proverbs 25, 28 says this, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Proverbs, as I told you last week, Proverbs are often built. There's often two parts to the statement. They usually go together. One is a proof of the other, an evidence of the other, or they're conflicting statements. They always go together, though. And in this situation, think about how those two statements go together. So a city whose walls are broken through. In ancient times, people would build big cities. You can still see this when you see ancient Israel. There's still some wall around the city. But if you think Jericho in the Old Testament, these massive like walls. And the way that an army would take out another city is they would either siege the city, so they'd surround it with their army and cut off supplies coming in and going out, so that sooner or later they just died from within, or they could attack, or they would just ransack those walls until they were able to punch through, get through the door, or whatever it is. And what the proverb is saying, what Solomon is saying here is, a person who doesn't have self-control have torn their walls down. They have no defense system left. So now the enemy could just run right in and plunder. So why do we go into debt? The main reason, honestly, is a lack of self-control. We want what we want, and we want it now. All right, number two. And I'll go a little quicker through these. Number two is search for significance. Let's just be really honest for a second. I've said it through every single message. But the problem with debt sometimes is that we buy stuff we don't need with money that we don't have to impress people who don't care. And you might even add, we don't really like. The truth about debt is that sometimes we bought things that we didn't need. How many of you, you don't raise your hand, okay? Just just rhetorical. How many of you are paying interest on something you bought a year ago on sale and convinced yourself it was a great purchase? But because you never paid it off, you've now paid double or triple the price on that thing. You maybe don't even own that thing anymore. You've already given it to Goodwill or you traded it or sold it or it died or it broke or it rusted or it ripped or whatever it is and you're still paying for it. That's the definition of crazy, right? When was the last time you went out to eat dinner and you paid for it with Visa or MasterCard or American Express or whoever, Discover Card? And when you did, you never paid it off. You're still paying for food that you left in the toilet a long time ago. (laughs) And you're like, that's crazy. Who would do that? And we do it all the time. Why? Because we're trying to find meaning and purpose and significance in this world. All right, the third one, third one. A search for security. 
when our hearts are not aligned with God, we chase after the safety. This world is a traumatic world. Death, sickness, disease, wants, desires, needs, it compounds. We live in a sin-traumatized world. The Bible's clear on that one. But then we try to find a security not in God's provision, but in our ability to provide. So we go get credit cards and loans and debt, and we think we're safe. All of that leads us to this thing. If you get nothing else today, then I want you to get this, okay? If nothing else, you can tune out and go ahead and take your nap now. Here we go. Spent principle number three is this. Contentment is the key that unlocks the door to happiness. Contentment is the key that unlocks the door to happiness. I told you in the first week, we're all on a happiness quest. Every single one of us want to be happy. We want to find joy. That's what we're looking for. And contentment is actually the answer. You're thinking, what does that mean? Well, contentment simply means this. I'm going to summarize it. I'll show you a Bible passage. Contentment means this, that I have everything I need. I won't necessarily have everything I want, but I will have everything I need. One of the gentlemen told me in between services today that he, he was really, he's like, man, I needed that message. Good reminder. He goes, reminds me of time I finally got taught me. He came to this conclusion that um, I was gonna start using my money for things that I need and not everything that I want. That when I win the Powerball one day, I'll finally get all the things I want. But until then, I'm gonna focus my money on what I need. And I said, man, I love that plan. Here's the problem for me. I don't buy Powerball tickets because I don't wanna waste my money. Your odds of winning are like one out of 765 million or whatever today because they changed the odds of winning, which they're not like they were great before. And so my problem is unless you buy me a ticket, that's never gonna work for me. So I'm gonna have to always be content with buying only what I need. That's contentment. And here's, you're like, well, that's no fun, Pastor. I know, but here's what the Bible says. First Timothy chapter six, verse six. Paul writes this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we could take nothing out of the world. You came in naked, guess which way you go out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be what? Content with it. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice it doesn't say the love of money is the root of all evil. That's what you've heard said. That's a misquote. Paul says it's the root of all kinds of evil. Not all evil comes from the love of money, but the love of money can certainly train wreck your life. In fact, he goes on in the very next part. This is mind-boggling. You need to hear this. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Jesus says it this way. What does it profit a man or woman if they gain the whole world but lose their soul? What would you be willing to trade for eternity? My son is obsessed with infinity. My, my, my oldest son, Matthias, he's, he's a little math savant. When he was in, uh, I can't remember if it was kindergarten or first grade, they gave him on accident the wrong um, I-step test, and he answered half the questions right, and they were mind-boggled. Like, he must be struggling with taking a test, blah, blah, blah. Then they found out they gave him the sixth grade math test, and he answered half the questions right. So... I'm often, I've got a couple math teachers that I know in our church. I'm often like writing, like, my son wants to know about this. I don't know what it is. Help me. And they're like teaching me, like, I wish my high school students were that hungry. I'm like, yeah, he's just really, really good at it. And he's been studying infinity. And he's been studying the infinitude of infinity. And here's the thing. Infinity is mind-boggling. One of my math friends here says, there are people who literally go crazy studying infinity. And here's what God has said. I will trade you infinity for your 80 years here. Anybody want to make a trade? You remember the song Amazing Grace? There's a verse in there that says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to what? 
Sing God's praise than when we first begun. And what does that mean? What will it be like to be in eternity and wake up tomorrow and have no less days than I had yesterday? See, you and I don't know what it feels like because every day we wake up, we feel the pressure of tomorrow. Why is all of that relevant? Because what Paul is trying to say is when you put your perspective on eternity and not on today, then it's not hard because all I need is what I need. God is gonna give me more than I need many times in my life because he's a good God and he wants to bless me. But then all of that is really just a way for me to say, God, how do I align my heart to your heart? How do I get in step with eternity and not just with today? All right, so here we go. Seven things that the Bible does teach and does not teach about debt. Seven things, right? You can count them down. We'll count them down together because this is kind of that boring part. You're like, that's the boring part? I know. So here we go. Number one, number one. The Bible does not teach that it is a sin to borrow. However, it can make you a slave. I want to say that again. Christians land all over the place on this one. But there is no verse that says it's a sin or it's evil to borrow money. However, the Bible is emphatic and there's more than one verse that says, but it can make you a slave. In fact, Proverbs 22, 7 literally says, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. Now, as I told you, this is actually, it comes out of Proverbs 22, 7, that a lot of times those two verses go together, those two statements go together, one proves the other. So think about this. How is this possible? Well, in ancient Israel, what would happen is there really was no banking system. So let's just say you owned a piece of land, everybody was allotted a piece of land according to God, and then let's say you had a, whatever, a farm and some land, you were working the farm, you had some animals, and some lightning struck, and it took out your animals, took out your barn, you lost all your crops. Well, now you're in trouble. You have nothing else to invest. You have no other way to survive. You could go to somebody with the resources and say, can I borrow some of your crops? Can I feed my family? And the only way that you could pay for that was to give them either your land or yourself as a servant. And that was the banking system. Now, what's really cool is in the Old Testament, there was something called the year of Jubilee. So every 49 years, not only was there a Sabbath year, you wouldn't work the land on that 50th year, all debts were erased. Everybody's dead. It was like bankruptcy, but better, because it was God-ordained and God-mandated. The only problem is Israel never saw that day, because Israel never literally had a 50-year period where they followed God's ways. Isn't that crazy? God offered them this amazing blessing of erasing all debts, and everything starts over. Their entire system was built around it. So in that culture, if you were rich, you ruled over the poor because the poor had to come to you to get money. And so you were able to give them the money. And when they couldn't pay you back, they had to become your indentured servants. When the Bible speaks of slavery, many times, it's not talking the way we saw slavery in America. Many times it was talking about somebody who had to work to pay off a debt. But that's exactly what you're doing when you get a loan or you use a credit card. You are now spending your hours at work, 40, 50, 60, 80 hours, paying off debts to somebody else who's charging you 10 and 15 and 25% interest on that money. You're a slave. So the Bible doesn't say it's evil or don't do it, it's a sin. I took out a loan on my house. I took a loan out on my car. I can afford both those things and I'm paying them off. And we try to pay them off early. But the Bible does say, number two, the Bible also does not teach that it's wise to borrow. I cannot show you a single verse that says, oh yeah, that's a great idea. You ought to go take out a loan. Wonderful concept. All I can say is it's, it doesn't say anything on the subject. There's literally not one command, not one endorsement of borrowing in God's word. Not one. Number three, the Bible does not teach that God will bail you out of excessive debt. This one is crucially important that I camp out on for just a little bit. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it say if you overextend yourself, you take on too much credit and too much debt and you can't afford it, you lose your job, that it's God's job to bail you out. In fact, the Bible teaches over and over and over again that you and I make choices in this world. And when we make choices, God is with us. He is for us. He will walk with us through our choices. However, if we go out because we are not self-controlling and maybe we're being greedy or whatever it is and we overspend, it is not God's name that will be shamed. We must be very careful. There are some I know who've done this in this room. We must be very careful not to blame God. Well, God, why aren't you? And I thought you loved me, and why don't you care? And God's going, I'd love you very much. I will make sure you have food. I will make sure you have clothing. I will make sure you have shelter. I will meet all of your needs. In fact, we looked at this last week, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus said this, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness And all these things will be given to you as well. What are all these things? It's not luxurious living. It's not luxurious cars and houses and clothing and perfumes and oils. God will make sure you have your food. God will make sure you have your clothing. God will make sure you have your shelter. I know many godly men and women, even at this church and in many other churches and ministries around the United States, who tragedy happened or terrible decision-making happened, and they carry a weight with them now. And they are constantly working to pay off their debts, and it controls them, and God is no less good, and many of them will tell you, look, here's how God showed up here, here's how he blessed us here, he gave us relief here, he's so good, but they still have to work to pay off their debt. All right, number four, I know, I know, it's not the most exciting sermon in the world, but I heard a lot of people in the hallway were like, I needed that today. So number four, the Bible does not teach that going into debt is an exercise of faith, So if you ever think to yourself or you try to convince your spouse or your boss or somebody else, the bank, the reason that you should do this is because this is not true. Nowhere does God teach that, hey, going into debt, I trust God's gonna show up. I trust that God's gonna come through. He's never gonna fail me. Of course, he's never gonna fail you, but that has nothing to do with it. It is not taught anywhere in scripture. Number five, the Bible does teach that all of our debts must be repaid. In fact, the Bible goes even further way further than you probably thought. See, we live in a bankruptcy culture. If it gets too hard, just go bankrupt and start over. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does teach that our debts are erased spiritually in Jesus Christ. That's how we can be made right with God. However, on earth, again, we have to take ownership of our choices. In fact, Psalm 37, verse 21 says this, the wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Again, think about how those two statements go together. I know it's not a proverb, but it's written like a proverb. So the wicked borrow and do not repay. So if I want to be considered righteous, then what am I going to do? Repay. But what if I file bankruptcy? My recommendation, if you're at that place, then you call every single creditor and you say, look, because of my faith in Jesus Christ, I owe you this money. Can we work out a plan or a process whereby I still will pay you back? And you're like, that would be stupid, pastor. No, that would be biblical. And it would be God going with you and showing up and blessing you. And it may take you the rest of your life. But what is infinity compared to 70 years? Are you with me? But notice the second part. But the righteous give generously. So the point of those two statements, they almost seem weird together. No, because what the writer is trying to say is that those who love God not only pay off their debts, but they pay off other people's debts. They help other people in their hour of need. Paul goes even further in the New Testament. He brings even more clarity to this. He says, look, if you're a thief, stop stealing. Get a job so that you'll have something to contribute. What is he saying? 
Stop taking advantage of everybody else and taking from everybody else and get a job, work hard so that you can contribute. Why? Because that pleases your heavenly father. When you do that, you're becoming like him. He actually goes even further, but we'll get to that in just a minute. Number six, the Bible teaches us to give rather than cosign. Cosign is when somebody you know, maybe it's a parent or a child or a neighbor or, or a friend or somebody in your life group, whatever, comes to you and says, I can't afford to buy this motorcycle, but it's an amazing deal and I don't wanna miss it. Would you be willing to put your name on the line? Maybe they don't have good enough credit. Maybe they don't have enough money in the bank, whatever it is. Would you put your name on the line? Now, what's gonna happen is if they default, if they can't make a payment, they lose a job, the tragedy happens, whatever it is, it's gonna be on you and you have to pay it. Here's what the Bible says about that. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 15. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer, but whoever refuses to shake hands and pledge is safe. In other words, this one's really simple. The two statements clearly just go together. They're one and the same. What he's saying is don't co-sign. Do not put your name on the line. Now, here's what's gonna happen because some of you are amazing people. You have the kindest, most tender hearts in the world. Somebody's gonna come to you and, and have this great story and you're gonna be moved because you love them, you care about them, whatever it is, and you're kind-hearted and you're gonna be moved. You say, oh, I just need to do this. It's their house. They're gonna be kicked out of their house or whatever it is. The Bible says don't do it. And there's not just one passage, there's many passages. Don't do it, don't do it. Is it evil to do it? No, but what's gonna happen is if they default, if they can't make their payment, if everything goes south and they're right back where they are right now, you know what you're gonna lose? Not your money, you're gonna lose your friend. You're going to lose your son, your parent. Now, some of you are so gracious, you could forgive it and move on, but for most people, the brokenness that occurs in that relationship is so paralyzing, and some of you know this because you've already done it. It ruins Christmas for a long time. But here's the other thing. The Bible doesn't say, it says don't cosign, but it says, you know what, just give. So if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I can't afford this, but I really want it or I really need it, would you be willing to co-sign? You say, no, I can't, but hang on. You go back, you talk to your spouse. If you're married, if not, you look at your bank account, you come back and say, okay, here's what I can do though. I can give you 500 bucks, 1,000 bucks, 10,000 bucks, whatever you can afford, I'm just gonna gift it to you. It's yours. I don't want repaid. I don't need anything back. It's yours. And some people go, ah, I can't do that. Look, you know what? You need a house? Here's $100,000. It's yours. And if you can afford that, I wanna buy you lunch this week. On me, you pick the place. Here you go. It's a gift. It's a gift. Jesus goes further. Catch this one. Luke chapter six, verse 32. Jesus says this. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Now think about this for a minute. In a conversation about love, Jesus uses a banking term. Don't you think that's interesting? What credit? Now, if you don't know anything, credit is a banking term. Credits and debits. One's going in, one's coming out. What credit do you get if you love those who love you? He goes on, he says, even sinners love those who love them. In other words, that's commonplace. Big deal. That doesn't match the love of your heavenly father. If our mission as a church is to become like Jesus, then we gotta love like Jesus. Jesus doesn't only love those who love him. Ooh. Verse 33, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Everybody does that. Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, don't co-sign, give. But don't just give to your family and friends. Give to your enemy. 
And I'm reading the book of Luke because we're going to start the book of Luke in December and go all the way to Easter. We're going to work through the book of Luke. I'm pretty stoked about that. But as I'm reading these passages, it's like two by four after two by four of God going, hey, how are you practicing now? I'm going, God, I don't even know who my enemies are, but who are my enemies that I could see their need and say, hey, here's $1,000. Here's 500 bucks. We've given many times to Christians in need. I, don't, I can't think of a time that anybody's ever come to me and asked for a loan, but many times we've met people who lost a job, went through a tragedy, health issue, whatever it is, and we just said, you know what, here's a gift card. If, if we know their situation, we know they're not wise with money, a lot of times we'll give them gift cards to places we think they can use. If you've ever gotten a gift card from me, that is not a statement about how we felt about you. But it's, hey, it's just a little something. Maybe God will use this to boost you, to encourage you. Hey, have a night out, a meal out. You know what? Hey, I'm not gonna co-sign to keep you in your home, but here's what I'll do. I'll cover your grocery bill for the next two months. Whatever it is, it's a way for me to come alongside you and say, I don't believe God intended for you to go through this alone, but you gotta learn some lessons. You're gonna have to carry some weight of this. It's gonna be hard and painful. Jesus goes on. He gets even harder, man. Read the whole thing in Luke 6. Unless you don't want the two by four, then don't read it. And if, you lend to the, and, and if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid at full. 35, beloved your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Romans 5, 8, while we... You and me, all of us were sinners. Jesus Christ died for us. In other words, he didn't wait for any of us to get good. He died because he loves us. At one point, Jesus heals 10 lepers. They all go off celebrating. One of them comes back and says, I'm one of those lepers you healed, and I just want to say thank you. And Jesus looks at him and says, weren't there 10 of you? Where are the other nine? You know what he didn't do? Forget that. There's our leprosy. See how they like that in the morning. You know what he did? He left them blessed. Because that's who God is. God is a God of blessing. And he does not judge or find faults when we find ourselves down and out. James clarifies this when James says, if you need wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you without finding fault. He's not looking for where you messed up. He just wants to help you. Will we look like Jesus and the way we deal with our money? Number seven, the Bible teaches that debt presumes on the future. In fact, James, the guy I just quoted, he goes so far and says this in verse 4, 13 and 14. He says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're gonna go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make lots of money. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. You're here and then you're gone. Now, what James is dealing with in the church there is he's dealing with arrogance, haughtiness. And what he's saying is not don't make plans, don't plan for the future, don't do anything like that. No, what he's saying is don't be arrogant, don't be haughty, don't be puffed up and go, oh, it's no big deal. I can take on tons of debt. You know why? Because next year I'm going to have so much money, we'll be fine. Don't worry, we got it all worked out. No, no, no. In fact, he goes on and he says, instead say, if the Lord wills, we're going to do this or we're going to do that. Now, when I was at Bible college and my teachers were preaching on this text, they would say, you can Lord will everything to death. Well, if the Lord wills, we're going to have a great parking spot. Well, if the Lord wills, we're going to eat lunch today. Well, if the Lord wills, we're going to have Chick-fil-A. Apparently, the Lord isn't willing today. <laughs> the point isn't just to Lord will everything and just say it like it means nothing. The point is surrender. 
you know what? My, my, my friend and my pastor, Billy Edmonds here, he's one of our executives on staff. He says, you know, Matt, we can only make decisions with the light that is available to us. So we do. We gather information. We take that light. We make decisions, and we don't do it in pride. Oh, yeah, we're going to be fine because with this information, we're going to do these things next year. It's, you know what, God? Given all the information that I have today, I'm making the best decision that I know how, and I trust you with tomorrow. And if I get more information down the road, if things change down the road, then you know what? I know that you're still with me, and I'll make another decision then in light of that information. But that's all any of us could do. It's a moment of surrender. It's not a moment of arrogance. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'll make plenty of money tomorrow because I'm telling you, I know lots of people in this church, in this community, and their haughtiness took on too much debt, perceiving that they would have more money later, and they didn't get it. And now they're paying for stuff they don't even have anymore. So, Kind of wrapping this up, how do we get out of debt? I'm gonna give you three very quick pieces of advice. The first one is gonna seem so obvious. There was a chuckle in the room as I said it, but you gotta start here, you ready? Number one, stop borrowing. How do I get out of debt? Stop borrow, borrowing. It, it just seems really obvious, right? Here's what they do in Financial Peace University. Again, at the end of the service, I want you to go out there and sign up if this is you today, okay? In Financial Peace University, in one of the first two classes, people actually turn in their credit cards and cut them up right there on the spot. Some of you are like, oh, how could I survive? That's the point. If you're living on your credit card, you can't survive for long. You're going to die. Cut that baby up. Put it away. Make some strong commitments and stick to them. If you walk downstairs, let's say you have a basement. I don't have a basement. Let's say you go into your basement, though, and you find there is uh, two feet of water in your basement. If the first thing you do is grab a bucket and start taking it out, what's the problem? Something is still putting water in your basement. The goal is not to keep taking water out. The goal is to cut the water off. You've got to turn off the problem or you'll never make progress. The same is true with debt. If you have a debt problem, you've got to stop and stop today. And if you're offended by this, please, I love you. That's why I'm telling you. Something has to change. The definition of insanity is to continue doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. Thank you, Einstein. All right, number two, start paying God and yourself first. The reason I say those two things, I believe they go together really, really well. Most financial experts would say you need $1,000 in a savings account. Some say $1,500, some say $2,000, whatever. $1,000 is a good marker. Almost every emergency in your life can be covered with $1,000. So once you stop borrowing, immediately you start putting money into a savings account. Try to get to that $1,000 as fast as possible, and that's your uh-oh, I didn't see that coming, money. It's your water software that goes out, your water heater that goes out. It's something breaks in your house, on your car, and you dip into that. So guess what you're not doing at that point? You're not taking out more debt. But the other part of this is God. When Jesus says, seek my kingdom and my righteousness, and I will take care of you, go read it for yourself. He's talking about money. And I believe with all my heart, there's a biblical principle called the tithe. Now, I'm not legalistic about the tithe. There are a lot of people that are. I'm not. But I believe there's a biblical principle that says, if you put God first, watch how God provides. And I'm taught on this year after year after year, and every year I get emails from people saying, Pastor, I tried this, and you're right. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. It was crazy. There's something about 10%. That's what a tithe means. There's something about 10% in your money that you and I can't figure out. 
But I can tell you, study after study after study shows it. In fact, the University of Notre Dame, if they stink and lose a football game so my team can make it to the playoffs, but University of Notre Dame did a study, the Science of Generosity Project. Here's what they found. I'm quoting now. Is, uh, they found that giving is actually good for you. Intentional and regular practices of generosity have been associated with the release of a slew of good chemicals, including oxytocin, dopamine, and various endorphins. There is also a strong and clear association with a sense of purpose in life, personal happiness, and overall personal health in those who give generously. On the other hand, the absence of giving is bad for you. Those who do not give regularly, and I'm quoting, have been found to harbor higher levels of the stress hormone cortisol, which has a linkage to everything from headaches to stroke to depression. It affects pain management, body temperature regulation, blood pressure, and the control of fear. So it must be some connection between God and money and stress and blessing that I can't understand. I can only tell you that I can see it and can actually be studied by people that when I am generous with my life and my resources, somehow I actually find the life that I've been looking for all along. That'll preach right there. So here's what I propose. I've said this for years. I've actually recently changed it. This is the first sermon I'm changing it. So here you go. I've grown. It's called the 10, 10, 10, 70 plan. You're like, what in the world does that mean? It's easy enough to remember, right? 10% goes to God. You know what? I recommend you give it to Kingsway. I do. And not just because I'm the pastor. We're doing some amazing things around the world, dollar club, in our community, missionaries, orphanages, hospitals, church planting. We're doing some amazing things. But if you have other God, Christ-honoring organizations you're supporting, praise God. You know what? Go do it. 10% goes to God. 10% goes in your savings account, retirement, something into the future, your kid's college fund. 10% goes to debt. I used to preach a 10, 10, 80 plan. I think 10% goes to debt because here's the glory of this. If you actually practice this, then what happens is when you pay off this debt, now you've got 10% to just do whatever you want to bless other people. My wife and I started a generosity account years ago. It's one of the greatest things we ever did. Two years ago, we were trying to do some other things. I turned off the drip on the generosity account. So let's just stop doing it for a season. You know what happened? We did it anyway, and we started going in debt. And like, now I'm giving away somebody else's money to somebody else. It's crazy. So we went back to planning on it. We have a separate bank account and a separate bank with our generosity account. Just every paycheck, money goes in there. So we can bless people. Man, what would, what would it look like for your life to be full of that kind of generous living? Saying, you know what, God, when I get these debts paid off, I'm gonna give well beyond what anybody ever thought or imagined I would give. And then the last 70%, you manage it. You figure it out, you live on it. And if you don't have the money, you don't buy the thing. I know that's hard and weird and awkward, but it works, it works. All right, the last thing I'll say, last thing. Number three, you've gotta start adjusting your lifestyle. The only way you can get to that 70% being enough to cover your bills is if you change the way you live. I had a friend who had a Diet Coke drug habit. <laughs> he would buy a Diet Coke, a large Diet Coke every day, cost like $1.09 here at McDonald's, and some days, on stressful days, two, and on stressful weeks, three. He was spending $300 to $500 a year on Diet Coke. And you're like, oh, come on, you gotta live a little, maybe. I don't know what your financial situation is, but if you're going into debt every single month, it might be time to turn off the Starbucks. Starbucks is gonna cost you 4 to $6 a drink on a regular basis every single day. You're like, well, I don't drink Starbucks. I don't like that burnt stuff. Okay, pick your coffee shop, pick your candy bar, pick your food habit, cigarettes, internet. Pastor, why are you gonna say Internet. 
Cell phone? Netflix? What can you turn off, downsize in your life to get it back under control? Because you can't keep living the way you're living and expect it to be different. It might be harder. Meal planning, packing your lunch the night before, spending a set of eating out, spending that same money buying food for the house and having three or four days worth of food. And there's any number of ways you can shop Goodwill, Walmart, Marshalls, clearance, coupons. I know it's hard work, but your peace is worth the work. The last verse I'll read, I don't have it on the screen. It comes from Philippians 4, verse 19. Paul says this, and my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches of Christ Jesus. He doesn't say all your wants. He doesn't say all your desires. He says all your needs. God will make sure you have clothing and food and shelter. The problem is we gotta rein in our longings for all those other things and submit them to Christ. Now, what I want to do is I realize this message falls in a lot of places. Some have heavy hearts. Some have deep conviction. Some are just waking up. What we're going to do now is go into communion. And I want to give you a chance to talk to God, okay? As you're going into this time with God, the bread and the juice that we're about to partake, if you're visiting with us today, that you're going to take that bread and juice and eat it, it represents the blood and the body of Jesus. I know that may sound weird if you're visiting with us, But what we believe is it's our chance to remember that Jesus paid all our spiritual debts. So when you take this today, if you come in here and you have a heavy heart because of your financial situation, what you get to do is take that bread and take that juice and say, you know what, thank you, God. Thank you that I don't have to pay for for my spiritual debt with you. Thank you that I don't have some credit account that is so big that I'm gonna spend eternity paying it off. Thank you that it was paid in full. Now, God, also thank you that you are with me. I'm gonna begin that prayer and then I'll hand it to you as you spend time with your heavenly father. God, thank you. Thank you for being a good and faithful God. Thank you for being kind and loving and compassionate. Thank you, God, that you've never left us. You've never forsaken us. Thank you, God, for sending your son to erase our debts. God, we may have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt here on earth. And we may struggle to pay off the rest of our life. But the debt that we incurred with you through our sin and our rebellion, we could never have paid off in an infinite amount of lifetimes. Oh God, thank you for paying the debt. And thank you for being good and kind and faithful. God, some in this room have heavy hearts because they are in such a tough financial place. God, it will not be easy to get out, but there is help. They can do it. Father, right now, encourage them. May your spirit sweep in this place. May it move in them and whisper to them, I am with you. You are not alone. Do not quit. We've got this. God, I pray for some of this room to be bold enough to go out to the desk afterwards and sign up for Financial Peace University. Get the help they need that 12 months from now, they're celebrating the generous way they're living instead of the indebted way they're living. And God, for the rest of us, thank you, Father for being so good and generous when we were your enemies. Teach us to be good and generous to ours. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.